Today marks the beginning of our journey through the profound and prophetic book of Isaiah. This book stands as a testimony to God's unwavering faithfulness, His redemptive promises, and the hope of final salvation found in Jesus Christ. So please open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, one of the Bible's key prophets, is considered among the greatest, one that is one of the most quoted books in the New Testament, quoted over 65 times. It is the third longest book after Jeremiah and the Psalms, and Isaiah ranks second in Messianic prophecies. This book vividly portrays Christ. To grasp Isaiah is to gain deeper insight into the person and work of Jesus Christ and into the New Testament. The better you know the book of Isaiah, the more you will know Jesus and the New Testament. Isaiah, meaning Yahweh is salvation, is also the main message of this book. Yahweh saves by His grace. Isaiah teaches that salvation is solely through God's grace and not by human efforts or strengths. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah, son of Amos, composed these prophecies during the 8th and 7th century BC. I'll spend a bit of time today laying the historical foundation of this book for the sermons that will follow. Isaiah likely had ties to the Davidic monarchy and was probably related to King David. Isaiah had a family. He had a son named Shi'ar Yashub, which means a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return, which we read about in Isaiah 7 verse 3. But his first wife passed away and he remarried a young virgin woman, an Alma, who would have a prophetically significant son named Emmanuel, God with us which we read about in Isaiah 7, verse 14. Isaiah would eventually be killed by King Manasseh, who reigned from 686 to 642 B.C. Isaiah ministered for, uh, from approximately 740 through to 680 B.C., a turbulent period in Israel's history marked by internal apostasy and the looming threat of the Syrian Empire. In 701 BC, Assyrian forces attacked Judah, threatening destruction and the exile of her people. Isaiah's prayer led to Yahweh's miraculous intervention, sparing Judah as remnants escaped Sennacherib's army. During this time, Israel faced both physical threats of invasions and spiritual threats of declining faith in God. As we see in the opening verse of Isaiah, Isaiah's ministry spanned four Judean kings. Uzziah, who reigned from 790 to 739 B.C., then Jotham from 750 to 732, then Ahaz from 735 to 715, and finally King Hezekiah, who reigned together with his father Ahaz from 729 and then alone from 715 to 686 B.C. By and large, these Judean kings struggled to fully trust Yahweh, 
which led to numerous national problems, pointing to the dire need for a just ruler, a king who will rule in the fear of Yahweh, a king that we just sang about. Yahweh addresses this need in explaining their ultimate hope. Their ultimate hope rests in Yahweh's promise to send a king who would deliver them from their enemies and who would save them from their own destructive sin. This era in Judah's history was a period of significant economic growth and defense. And the leaders like Uzziah, who expanded trade routes, built a port in Eilat, fortified Jerusalem, and developed the Negev. However, during this prosperity, Judah was guilty of widespread idolatry and social inequality. In the first half of the 8th century BC, Israel's enemies were relatively weak, which enabled Israel to grow in power and to prosper. But Assyria was beginning to grow in power and expand its empire westward, which posed a substantial threat on both the northern kingdom, Israel, the the ten tribes of Israel, as well as the southern kingdom, Judah, the remaining two tribes. And as a result of this Assyrian threat, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Aram of Syria, they formed an anti-Assyrian coalition. But because Judah refused to join the anti-Assyrian coalition, they attacked Judah in 735 BC. Their goal was to overthrow the Davidic dynasty, the Davidic monarchy, by replacing King Ahaz with someone who is loyal to the anti-Assyrian alliance. But King Ahaz, despite the prophet Isaiah's protests, formed an alliance with the enemy, with Assyria. And he sent tribute to Tiglath-Pileser III, the Assyrian king, so that Assyria might assist Judah in resisting Israel and Syria. And in 732 BC, Assyria invaded Aram and Israel, making Judah a vassal state under Assyrian domination. Some time had passed. Tiglath-Pileser III was then succeeded by Shalmaneser V, who was then succeeded by Sargon II, who was then succeeded by Sennacherib. And in Judah, King Ahaz was succeeded by his son, King Hezekiah. And in 701 BC, the Syrian king Sennacherib After his conquest of the Philistine plain and 46 cities of Judah, he attacked King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. 2 Kings 18 describes how the Assyrian envoys used psychological tactics to pressure Judah into surrendering. But despite these dire circumstances, Isaiah and Hezekiah continued to trust Yahweh, who would eventually deliver them from Sennacherib. Later, Sennacherib was assassinated by his own sons, but the Assyrian threat continued to persist persist until 612 BC, when the Medes joined forces with Nebo-Pelassar of Babylon to overthrow Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. This ended the Assyrian reign, which led to the Neo-Babylonian power. Ultimately, it was Neo-Babylon who would defeat Judah by King Nebuchadnezzar in 605 BC, as described in Isaiah 36 through 39. Throughout Isaiah, Yahweh exalts those who trust in him, 
and he condemns those who don't. Israel falls into the hands of their enemies, and the reason why God placed them into the hands of their enemies was because of their lack of faith. Yet this was not the end. Yes, Yahweh promised judgment, but he also promised restoration through the Messianic kingdom. So how does all of this relate to Christmas? Well, the book of Isaiah prophesies about Jesus Christ. It details the Messiah's birth, his life, and his ministry. Isaiah is a prophecy about Jesus, the coming king, Jesus, the anointed conqueror, Jesus, the branch, Jesus, the foundation, Jesus, the teacher, Jesus, the servant. And the book of Isaiah includes many prophecies concerning the future messianic kingdom. So what's the purpose of this book? Why did Isaiah write this book? The book of Isaiah serves, firstly, as God's warning to Israel to repent and turn away from their sins and to trust in Yahweh. Secondly, it proclaims God's promise that despite the invasions and the exile, God will restore them through, their, through his long-awaited Davidic king, the son of David. God will fulfill his promise by sending the promised seed. And we saw this promised seed a few weeks ago in Genesis 3.15. One who will be born of a virgin in the line of Judah, which we'll see at the end of Genesis. Jesus Christ the Messiah who will deliver his people from their enemies and who will save them from their sin. And as you know, Jesus came and he provided salvation from sin 2,000 years ago. But we, like Israel, are still awaiting the day when he will deliver us from his enemies, when he will establish his kingdom here on earth. When God returns, he will cleanse the world of sin and lift the curse from the ground. Joy to the world, we will sing. The book of Isaiah is divided into two main sections. The first section, the first part is chapters 1 through 39, containing numerous prophecies of judgment, and the focus is Yahweh's judgment, whereas the second part focuses on Yahweh's future salvation that will come to earth in chapters 40 through 66. So that's a a brief overview of the historical context of the book of Isaiah. Before we turn our attention to Isaiah chapter 7, let's take a brief walk through the first six chapters of Isaiah, which form the introduction to the book. So please, if you're not there already, look at chapter 1 of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. And in Isaiah chapter 1, we see that God accuses His people for forsaking Him and engaging in empty religious practices. And thus He warns them of His impending judgment. But God pleads with them to repent, offering hope and a promise of restoration. But the chapter ends revealing the inevitable judgment that will come due to Israel's constant refusal to heed God's call. Isaiah 1 highlights God's rejection of superficial religious acts that are devoid of genuine faith. It emphasizes that outward rituals hold no value without a sincere heart commitment. In Isaiah chapter 2, God delivers warnings to his people, telling them about the consequences that they can expect if they don't repent and if they don't trust in him. 
and God presents two possible outcomes. Outcome number one, forgiveness and deliverance for those who repent and believe in his coming kingdom, or devastation for those who refuse to believe. Judah had a chance of restoration by turning to the Lord, but sadly, they don't. In Isaiah chapter 2, there's an anticipation of Christ's coming, where he'll establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. Although you and I understand that this is still yet to come when Christ returns to this earth. Verses 2 through 4 describe how Christ's dominion will change the course of their lives. Warfare will end and Israel will be exalted. In verses 5 through 22, Isaiah portrays God's promise of redemption through Christ's first coming, but also warns of the impending destruction due to their rejection of Him. Their demise was due to misplaced trust. Trusting in idols, trusting in wealth, trusting in the military strength of other nations, and not trusting in Yahweh. Isaiah 2 demonstrates the human tendency towards pride in our wisdom. Instead of trusting in God and His promises, we trust in others, which leads to our ruin. God calls us to place our trust solely in Him and solely in His redeeming grace. In Isaiah chapter 3, God warns Israel of imminent judgment, urging repentance and a return to His Word for blessing rather than for destruction. God explains how the impending attacks are His judgment against them. Isaiah also discusses the devastating consequences of corrupt leadership, highlighting the nation's shamelessness, ruthless leaders and the arrogance of the woman. He emphasizes the consequences of sin leading to societal ruin and encourages Judah toward obedience and loyalty in order to avoid further destruction. But God is so compassionate and so gracious. And in chapter 4, Isaiah moves from rebuke to a promise of restoration. And he outlines four assurances. Firstly, the promise of a righteous king. Secondly, the promise of fruitful prosperity, which will extend even beyond Israel's borders during the kingdom. Third, a promise of a purified people. A remnant will be purified through their faith in the Messiah and thus be permitted entry into the kingdom. And the fourth promise is Yahweh's dwelling will be among His people. God will dwell among them. This restoration involves a purification process through suffering, the seven-year tribulation. Isaiah 4 shows us the importance of relying exclusively on God's saving grace through Christ's sacrifice and anticipating His return where He will bring in complete redemption. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah continues the theme of judgment. The Syrian invasions are God's judgment upon Israel. However, even in the midst of this looming judgment, there remains the promise of Messiah's light in the Messianic kingdom. And thus Isaiah emphasizes the need for us to turn from our sins as judgment awaits unrepentant sinners just as it awaited ancient Israel. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see Isaiah's prophetic call, and it's divided into two sections. Firstly, we see Isaiah's cleansing in verses 1 through 7, and secondly, Isaiah's commission 
in verses 8 through 13. Isaiah sees a vision of God's holiness, which then reveals his own inadequacy. He sees Christ high and lifted up, surrounded by the cherubim, singing, holy, holy, holy. And then God purifies Isaiah's lips, preparing him for ministry. A ministry which would involve, uh, a preaching ministry that would involve a message of hardening, destruction, and promise. A message that will both convert and also harden sinners. Similar to the message that Moses preached in his role with Pharaoh, which contributed towards Egypt's judgment. Because of Israel's prolonged rejection of God's truth, they will face destruction. But God will preserve a remnant who will undergo purification as, as, as symbolized by this felled oak regrowing. Chapter 6 portrays God's aversion to sin and the inevitable judgment that will fall upon those who are faithless. But he displays his unwavering faithfulness. Even in the midst of their faithlessness, Yahweh remains faithful, demonstrating his gracious promise made through Christ's sacrifice. He will bring redemption through Christ. And this brings us to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7 through chapter 12 emphasizes Yahweh's judgment and salvation for Jerusalem and Judah. Chapter 7 portrays a contrast of trusting in Yahweh versus the reliance upon foreign powers for deliverance, emphasizing a lack of trust in God will lead to severe consequences. Amid the looming judgment, God's plan for redemption is through this promised special child, this prophesied special child, the one who will be born of a virgin. And that's the recurring theme through chapters 7 through 12. Yahweh provides many signs to reassure King Ahaz, which provides reassurance for his imminent crisis. But it also has long-term messianic implications guaranteeing the survival of the Davidic dynasty. Isaiah 7 encapsulates both the immediate as well as the enduring outcome of God's providence, God's faithfulness through the special child born of a virgin. God presents, King, God presents King Ahaz with two signs to assure him that the Davidic dynasty will be preserved despite the threats from Syria and Israel. And the first sign we see in verses 1 through 9, where God promises to thwart their enemies and to protect Judah, encouraging King Ahaz to trust in God's help. This event took place in 734 BC, shortly after Ahaz ascended the throne. But despite Yahweh's reassurance, Ahaz did not place his faith in Yahweh. And he sought assistance from Assyria instead. And what happened? Assyria betrayed Judah and invaded, resulting in the captivity of many Jews. Unlike his father Jotham and his grandfather Uzziah, Ahaz didn't obey God. He didn't place his faith in Yahweh. During Jotham's reign, when Syria and Israel fought against Judah, Yahweh intervened, granting Judah success. But because of Ahaz's faithlessness, Judah would be eventually captured 
and Jerusalem would be destroyed. Isaiah brought his son, Shear Yashub, with him during this national crisis when he spoke to Ahaz, and he said, Do not be afraid of the impending onslaught by Rezin and Pekah, whom God referred to as the two stubs of smoldering firebrands. Ahaz, trust Yahweh. But instead, Ahaz chose to place his faith in human strategies and alliances. And within 65 years, Israel's identity as a distinct people would diminish due to Assyrian enslavement and repopulation. And over the next 30 years, until Hezekiah's reign, Judah was left vulnerable to the ongoing Assyrian invasions. Although God promised Ahaz protection, Ahaz's disbelief led to devastating consequences for Judah. Once again, emphasizing the importance of placing our faith in, in Yahweh and in His promises. Finally, this brings us to our passage this morning. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10 through 25. Following Ahaz's initial lack of faith, we see in this section that Yahweh gives Ahaz a second sign. And this sign involves the promise of God to destroy their enemies before Ahaz's eyes. And in verse 14 contains one of the most famous prophetic passages, the significance to its immediate historical context in Judah's time, but also its fulfillment relating to Christ, notably in the New Testament account of the virgin birth of Jesus, which we read about in Matthew chapter 1, verse, verses 18 through 25. Because Ahaz didn't listen the first time, God spoke to him again. And in verses 10 through 25, he gives Ahaz a second sign. And so with that context in mind, let's read Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 25 together. Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 25 reads, Then Yahweh spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from Yahweh your God. Make it deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not test Yahweh. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey in order that he will know to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Yahweh will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house days which have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. And it'll be in that day that Yahweh will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest parts of the rivers of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and rest upon the steep ravines, on the crevices of the cliffs, on all the thorn bushes, and on all the watering places. In that day the Lord will shave with a razor, one hired from regions beyond the river, that is, the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and it will also remove the beard. And it'll be in that day that a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep. 
And because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curd. For everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. And it will be that day, in that day, that every place where there... Sh- Verse 23. And it will be in that day that every place where there used to be 1,000 vines valued at 1,000 shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns. As for all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place for pasturing ox, oxen and for sheep to trample. So reads God's authoritative and all-sufficient word. In Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 25, despite human doubt, Yahweh's faithfulness is revealed in the promise of Emmanuel. Yahweh's faithfulness amidst human unbelief revealed in the sign of Emmanuel. The account begins with the crisis of faith. The crisis of faith, which we see in verses 10 through 13. The crisis of faith. And I'm going to reread verses 10 through 13. Then Yahweh God said to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from Yahweh your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not test Yahweh. Then he said, this is Isaiah said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? In Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 13, God urges Ahaz to request any sign as a proof of his promise to deliver Judah from the hands of Syria and Israel. Their threats. Ahaz, pretending piety, declined, claiming that he didn't want to test the Lord. Ironically, God had already promised a sign. Isaiah rebuked Ahaz's insincere piety, highlighting the folly of rejecting God's care and relying upon Assyria instead of trusting in Yahweh. Despite God's offer of a sign, Ahaz's refusal demonstrates his lack of faith and the reliance upon flawed human wisdom, emphasizing the importance of trusting in God's promises, especially in times of difficulty in times of crisis and trial. But even amid human doubt, God remains faithful. Despite Ahaz's rejection of a sign, God provides one, which leads to the second point. We've seen the crisis of faith. Now let's consider the certainty of faithfulness. The certainty of faithfulness, which we read in verses 14 through 16. The certainty of Yahweh's faithfulness. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey in order that he will know to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. In verses 14 through 16, God assures Ahaz of a sign to confirm his promise to protect Judah from Syria and Israel. 
the prophecy involves a young unmarried woman, an Alma, conceiving and bearing a child. Whilst this originally refers to Isaiah's future bride, Matthew applies this to refer to the Virgin Mary in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25, emphasizing this close connection between this prophetic child and Jesus, Emmanuel, which of course means God with us. The original context of Isaiah doesn't explicitly convey that this child has a divine nature, but this is a sign from Yahweh which assures King Ahaz of God's presence and God's promise. However, it also foreshadows an event that will occur in 700 years from this point in history, an event when Jesus, the son of David, would be born of a virgin Mary, where he will walk on this earth as the God-man, God with us, providing salvation for sin. As I mentioned, details about this special prophesied child. He indicates that before the child understands moral distinctions, before he knows the difference between good and evil, the Syrians will invade and devastate the land, resulting in a scarcity of resources. And this will occur within the next two to three years. The child's diet will be curds and honey, which signifies the land's diminished productivity due to, due to the Assyrian invasion. The prophecy also assures in verse 16 that before the child matures, the threat of Syria and Israel, these two nations rising up against Judah, will be dissipated, ensuring the survival of the Davidic dynasty. Historical records align with this prophetic timeline because Tiglath-Pileser's invasion began in 734 BC after, Isaiah's prophet, after he prophesied. And then within two years, his army took Damascus, attacked Israel, culminating in the eventual fall of Samaria in 722 BC. And the devastation didn't stop with Syria and Israel, but it continued and it eventually reached Judah as well, resulting in dire conditions in the land. And so we begin to see the consequences of faithlessness, the consequences of not believing in God and His promises, which leads us to our third and final point. In Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 25, the prophet Isaiah describes the historical account illustrating the importance of trusting Yahweh, especially in the midst of trials. The account began with Ahaz's crisis, of faith, then we saw Yahweh's certainty, his, his faithfulness, and then third and finally, we see his judgment, the consequences of faithlessness in verses 17 through 25, the consequences of faithfulness. Verses 17 through 25 reads, Yahweh will bring upon you, on your people, and on your father's house, days which have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. And it'll be in that day that Yahweh will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and rest upon the steep ravines, on the crevices of the cliffs, on all the thorn bushes, and on all the watering places. 
In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor, one hired from regions beyond the river, that is the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and it'll also remove the beard. And it'll be in that day that a man will keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep. And because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds. For everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. And it'll be in that day that every place where there used to be 1,000 vines valued at 1,000 shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns. As for all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns because they will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample. In Isaiah 7, verses 17 through 25, we see that despite God's assurance to Ahaz that the Davidic dynasty would endure, Ahaz's lack of faith resulted in dire consequences. And Isaiah outlines five specific warnings highlighting the aftermath of Ahaz's unbelief. Firstly, the catastrophic events in verse 17. God emphasizes the impending Assyrian invasion, and he compares it to the split of Israel's 12 tribes, where the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split, 10 tribes to the north, 2 tribes to the south, in 931 B.C. God likens this Assyrian invasion to that dark period in Israel's history. The second warning is the devastating invasion in verses 18 and 19 where God asserts that he is responsible for orchestrating this invasion. He is raising up the Assyrians and Egypt, the Assyrian bee and the Egyptian fly, as his instruments causing substantial damage to the land. The third warning is severe humiliation in verse 20. Ahaz's reliance upon Assyrian support brought humiliation as God turns the situation against Judah. Fourthly, the loss of resources in verses 21 and 22. Invaders will destroy the essential food sources, resulting in a scarcity of crops, changing the region's landscape. And then fifth and finally, there will be total desolation, verses 23 through 25. Judah's flourishing territory will be deteriorated. This once fertile land will become desolate, overrun with briars and thorns, becoming the home to wild animals. Livingstone family, these warnings, though they occurred a millennia ago, are still relevant for us today. We're reminded of the importance of trusting in the Lord and trusting in His Word, obeying His Word, even and especially in the midst of trials and tribulations, threats to our safety and security, irrespective of the magnitude or the nature. Brothers and sisters, cultivate your trust in God. May I encourage you to deepen your trust in Yahweh. I know many of you are facing very difficult times, trials of various kinds. Many of you are facing health struggles and sin struggles and family problems, financial pressures and parenting issues, not to mention our country's problems and the current global crisis which we find ourselves living in. 
May I exhort you to strengthen your faith through being intentional in spending much time with God in His Word, reminding yourself of His promises and His faithfulness, and His faithfulness to fulfill them. Avoid the temptation of relying on man-made solutions. Don't seek human solutions to your spiritual problems. Don't rely on worldly wisdom in times of trouble. Agonize with the Lord in prayer, seeking His guidance, His wisdom, His provision. In every situation, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Seek His help. It doesn't matter how big or how small. Turn to the Lord in prayer. How many opportunities did God give King Ahaz to trust him? Plenty. Friend, learn from your past mistakes. Learn from the consequences that you are now facing because of your lack of faith in the past. Trust in the Lord and His Word. Don't fall into the same faithlessness, the same sin, the same foolish decision again. Be resolved. That is for you and your house, you will serve the Lord. Remain steadfast in your unwavering obedience to God's commands, even in the face of adversity and trial and difficulty. May you lead a life that is marked by obedience and fidelity to God's word. Be a support and encouragement to those around you. May you shine God's light of hope and faith in a world that is just so full of uncertainty and turmoil. Encourage your fellow brother and sister in Christ towards unity, towards love, towards care. Spur them on toward love and good works in His church. And of course, understanding God's imminent judgment. I hope that you are reminded of the urgency to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reaching out to those around you. Invite them to carols this, sat this Saturday. Proclaim Christ, the Christ of Christmas, in this festive season. And most importantly, by faith and obedience, live out God's truth. I exhort you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind so that you may approve the, what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. Let's bow before him in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. We bow before you, acknowledging your sovereignty and your goodness. Thank you for the truths revealed in your word this morning. We lift up our church who are facing various trials, health struggles, sin battles, family issues, financial burdens, and the complexities and the challenges of the world around us. Grant us as your people strength to trust in you wholeheartedly. You are our refuge in times of trouble. Help us, O oh God, to saturate our minds with your word that we might gain wisdom to apply it to our lives as faithful disciples. Guard us from seeking worldly wisdom. Grant us humility to seek your guidance and your provision through prayer, regardless of the extent of the situation. Enable us to learn from past mistakes, to avoid faithlessness, 
trusting unwaveringly in your word. Help us to remain steadfast, to live obediently to your truth, to support one another, shining your hope amid life's uncertainties. Instill in us a passion for sharing the gospel, extending invitations and proclaiming Christ's love joyfully, especially during this Christmas season. Empower us to live out your truth, presenting our lives as pleasing sacrifices to you. Renew our minds to discern your will and transform us into the image of Christ. We commit ourselves and our church to you, seeking your guidance, your protection, your strength as we walk along this journey of faith. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.